Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, in all likelihood, I think we're, we're um, you know, on the cusp of a, a fall federal election campaign. So certainly a lot to talk about. Very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon. Uh, Canada's official opposition leader. His name is Aaron O'Toole. He is the leader of the uh, Federal Conservative Party of Canada, member of Parliament uh, for Durham, Ontario. And joins us on the line here this afternoon. Mr. O'Toole, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Rob. Uh, so, first of all, in terms of what's going on with the possibility uh, of a fall election, I think all the signs are pointing in that direction. Everything we're hearing from the prime minister, are you kind of operating under the assumption that we're on the cusp of a campaign here? Well, we're planning for one. You know, I know Justin Trudeau well enough to know that he's always going to put his own personal interest ahead of the country's national interest. And we should be focused on reopening. Uh, getting uh, our border sorted out with rapid tests and, and open quickly and safely. We should be helping small businesses and hard-hit sectors, but he seems to be posturing for one. Uh, I'm just able to get out on the road now post-COVID as a new opposition leader. Had a great tour in Alberta not long ago. I'm in New Brunswick now, so we'll be ready for it. But we put out a Canada recovery plan because we really want the country to get back to work and get, get moving forward. And that's going to be our focus. And when people have the chance to look at my record and our plan, the conservative plan to unite the country and get it moving forward, I think uh, I'm very optimistic we will win the election if it does come. Well, yeah, certainly when it comes to economic recovery, I mean, you know, there's some some signs of encouraging data in the uh, June GDP numbers we see from from StatsCan today. Obviously, the pandemic is is a big obstacle to recovery. I think vaccine, the vaccine rollout seems to go in a whole lot better in Canada at the moment. So, um, you know, where are we at in terms of that, that economic recovery and what, what more might be needed? Well, Mr. Trudeau, as you see, is just extending the, the emergency benefits that haven't changed since the beginning of the pandemic. In fact, he's given millions to companies with record profits in some sectors and then done zero for travel, tourism, uh, hospitality that have been the hardest hit and will be the slowest to recover. So we have a million jobs in one year plan, the first pillar of our Canada's recovery plan that will help those highly affected sectors, help small businesses, help sort of Main Street. But then we're the only party that supports Canadian energy, supports natural resources in all parts of the country. I was in Newfoundland, Labrador. They have an offshore. They've been hit hard by Bill C-69 and Trudeau's anti-energy policies. So we need every cylinder in our economic engine firing to tackle the half trillion of debt Mr. Trudeau's added. He's already raised taxes, and we've got one of the highest unemployment rates in the G7. He's got zero plan. That's why he's going to try and extend payments, give some checks to some of our seniors, try and bribe Canadians with their own money just ahead of an election. But I think most Canadians know this is not sustainable. We need to get people back to work. We need to get the finances under control, and Conservatives will do that. 
Well, it's a tricky balance, I, I, I realize. But I mean, yeah, we've seen some sobering analyses this week from the Parliamentary Budget Office, a report from the C.D. Howe Institute, you know, with regard to the, um, you know, our fiscal sustainability, the amount of debt we're racking up. But if you're prioritizing economic recovery and, and the creation of jobs, does that mean those those issues have to take a back seat for now? How, how do you do both? You do both by making sure people get back to work. The best way to tackle getting expenditures down is to make sure that people are working and not on support programs. The best way to fire up the economy is to actually support selling our resources around the world, including oil and gas, some of the best ESG leaders in the world. There are jobs across the country attributable to resource economies in Western Canada. I was in St. John, New Brunswick, and saw piles of potash being exported to Europe helping create jobs in Atlantic Canada, but Saskatchewan resource. So we've got to show Canadians this is all connected. Mr. Trudeau, who has never had to apply or work for a job in his life, makes decisions about the livelihoods of hundreds of thousands of families without any context of what's going on at their kitchen table. I've come from, you know, middle-class values where I had to fight hard for all my opportunities I'm going to make sure that in all sectors of our economy, in all regions of the country, we get working. We help some of the highly impacted sectors. We help mental health. We have more self-reliance as a country for vaccines. And we get, get our economy back on track. I think Conservatives did that in the last global recession. We led the world. We can do it again, but we really have to get rid of a tired and, and truly corrupt Liberal government. What's holding back job creation, though? I mean, do, do we need tax changes? Do we need specific policy changes? Where, where does that path lie? Well, we've got an anti-private sector government in Justin Trudeau. And think back, Rob, before the pandemic. It's hard to do that sometimes. It's, it's been with us so much. We saw Warren Buffett pull out of Canada because he, he cited political risk. It's come to a point that Nobody thinks anything can get built, done, or made in Canada. So we saw $160 billion leave our country before COVID, much of it in Alberta. It's causing national unity tensions. So I'm going to send a totally different message. I worked inspecting pipeline. I've worked in the resource sector even as a lawyer later in my career after the military. I'm proud of what people do to provide for their family, and we, we need to get Ottawa out of the way and fire up this economy because Mr. Trudeau's complete lack of, of focus on our economy is putting health care at risk, putting old age security at risk, because he's, he's racked up a half trillion dollars worth of debt and he's undermined the private sector ability to, to get the economy roaring. So we will, we will bring this back. We'll be proud of what we do in the country again. And, and that's in all parts of it, not just a recovery for for downtown Toronto and Montreal, we need to make sure everyone is lifted up. Uh, regarding the Senate, as you're aware, the uh, the Prime Minister announced some Senate appointments this week, and that includes uh, filling one of Alberta's uh, two vacancies. Now, this comes, you know, a few months or a couple of months ahead of uh, Alberta's uh, senator-in-waiting election. The Premier here yesterday, you know, calling it a, a slap in the face from, from uh, the Prime Minister to Alberta. Um, do you agree, first of all, that it is? Yes, it's a complete lack of respect for the tried and true desire for Albertans to have a say in who's going to be in the Senate, the upper chamber of Parliament. It worked very well going back to the Harper government. In fact, the first appointed senator goes back to the Mulroney government. It's actually only been Liberals who put 
supporters or insiders. Mr. Trudeau likes to suggest this is independent. This is completely planned by the PMO. And to think he, he did this literally a few months before Albertans could have had a democratic say, just a complete lack of respect. It was odd that, that he only filled one of the vacancies, and, and I'm not sure what to make of that, but it does leave one. I mean, if we happen to have a, a, a federal election that occurs before that October Senate uh, in waiting election, I mean, would you commit to appointing the winner of that election to fill that additional vacancy? Rob, not only have I said I would choose from the list provided from Albertans, I said, I said this several months ago, a conservative government led by me would actually help pay for the provincial or municipal elections of any other province that wants to follow the Alberta example. I think there's a, there's a great precedent for the Albertan senators that were elected being accountable. When you knock on doors, when you ask to hear from people in your province, you're then going to be accountable to them. There's a built-in element of that in the democratic process. So any other province that wants to follow Alberta's lead we will actually partner with them and, and help facilitate those lists. I think it can be a way of modernizing and making our democracy more effective without ha- having to get into Meech Lake-style constitutional negotiations. And Alberta's shown it, it's worked, you know, half a dozen times over the last couple of uh, decades. Mr. Trudeau moving so quickly is just a, another sign that he really doesn't care about Alberta or, or Western Canada. Uh, look, and, and I certainly favor the, the election of senators. I mean, it's it's a, it's a, an improvement over the status quo, but I think we're, we're still electing somebody to a job for life. They never have to run for re-election. Uh, I think more is needed. I recognize that whether it's you or anybody else as prime minister, there, there are some constitutional obstacles to really meaningfully reforming the Senate. Uh, is, is this likely as far as, as you could go? Or how much of a priority is Senate reform? Well, I've been talking about it for several years. In fact, I've talked about this proposal of of encouraging, incentivizing other provinces to follow Alberta's lead for several years in two leadership races. I I would love to do more, but as we knew from the Supreme Court, Mr. Harper sent a reference trying to see if we could have uh, elected and and changes to the the Senate terms, for example, and the, the Supreme Court came back and said there are there are limitations they approved of what Alberta had done but they then suggested any other major change would require constitutional amendment I don't think anyone wants to get into that level of of constitutional wrangling so let's actually work with what we can do Alberta has shown Alberta has now had elected senators fill their term retire and be replaced by another elected senator it's just the Liberals preferring to go off their own list. And we've seen this when they were caught consulting their liberal liberal list, they call it, for judicial appointments. This is the old Liberal Party that we remember from the sponsorship scandal, the We Cherry scandal, SNC-Lavalin. If you're friends of Mr. Trudeau, not only do you go to the private islands with him, you get special access and privileges. No wonder people are losing faith in politicians. It's because we see a culture of entitlement from Mr. Trudeau, and that needs to end, and it will end. That's why the second pillar of our recovery plan is tough transparency and accountability laws. 
Well, and, and you, you probably don't need to open the Constitution to appoint uh, an elected senator from Alberta, but there's another vote happening in Alberta at the same time that very explicitly asks the federal government, uh, be it the current government, uh, perhaps a future conservative government, to reopen the Constitution on the issue of equalization. Is, is that potentially problematic? Well, I understand why uh, why the government is going forward to, to hear from Albertans on this. I've followed the fair deal process. I've spoken to the Premier directly. Albertans are right to be frustrated when their economic potential has been literally tripped up intentionally by Ottawa. It's why when I was in Alberta a few weeks ago, I said we'd fix fiscal stabilization, something all the Premiers have asked for, led by by Premier Kenny, that would give an equalization rebate with a, a backdated amount to 2015, $4 billion that was overpaid by Alberta uh, because fiscal stabilization wasn't working. Going forward, I would also eliminate Bill C-69 and some of the things that have directly held back Alberta's success. And this is what it, Mr. Trudeau has to realize. When you're purposely interfering in the provincial jurisdiction, violating our constitution, you are then eroding people's confidence in our country. And when Alberta has given hundreds of billions of dollars over the last few generations uh, to the public coffers, you then can't hold them back from the very economic success all Canadians have benefited from. So that's why we see frustration out there. But we can fix that. We don't have to have protest parties and, and actually help Mr. Trudeau by letting our frustration win. Let's fix the system. The first step is fiscal stabilization and the equalization rebate. The second step, let's unleash the Alberta economy. We're going to need it to tackle this debt and unemployment coming out of COVID. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned all of those factors. I mean, it, it seems like there's a volatility in Alberta at the moment, whether it be in provincial politics or even federal politics. I mean, it, it feels like, if nothing else, maybe it's more competitive than it's been. I mean, what what does that all signal to you? And you know, given the you know the bedrock of support for the conservatives that has typically been here in Alberta. Well, the support is still there, Rob. And and what I've seen is the frustration level with Mr. Trudeau has risen every year he's been prime minister. Add to that COVID. Add to that the oil price and the OPEC war at the at the, the beginning of the pandemic. You've seen Alberta go through round after round of either attacks from Ottawa or hits in the global economy, and they feel that no one's fighting for them. I will fight for the province. It's something I've been doing for many years. As I said, I've worked in energy. I've seen from Ontario how important Alberta's success is to the national economy. So what I say to frustrated people, even a veteran I met in Miscu, Alberta, who was so frustrated, he, he wants to consider leaving Canada, a country he served for 30 years. I said, don't let Mr. Trudeau win by being frustrated. Use our great democracy to replace him. He's tired, he's entitled, and he is putting Canada on a path to a less united, less prosperous future. And I think there's a new conservative leader who's going to take the fight to Mr. Trudeau, and I'm going to do it with a plan, Canada's recovery plan and a track record of getting things done in the military, in the private sector, in politics. It's time for serious ethical leadership again, and that's exactly what Albertans or New Brunswickers, where I am right now, that's what they'll get with a Conservative government. We'll leave it there for now. Aaron O'Toole, thanks for making some time for us here today. Appreciate the conversation. Great to be with you, Rob, and enjoy some of the summer.
You as well. There you go. Aaron O'Toole, conservative leader, uh, official opposition leader, and uh, some thoughts from him on well, a whole bunch of stuff. All right, welcome back. Rob Ridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. Some interesting new data out of France today uh, with regard to the impact of vaccines. Looking at the rate of hospitalization. The rate of hospitalization among unvaccinated people in France is 132 per million. The rate of hospitalization among the fully vaccinated is 16 per million. So a fraction of the rate for the unvaccinated. But it's not zero either. So this is the situation we're at right now where we're facing a a real difficult foe in this Delta variant. But the good news is that these vaccines do still work well. Now, if the rate of hospitalization among fully vaccinated people becomes the de facto rate of hospitalization across the population, then yes, we fundamentally change the equation when it comes to this virus and this disease. And at some point, we're going to be able to start to treat it like other infectious diseases. But are we at that point yet? Alberta believes that we are. And come next month, we're going to be, for all intents and purposes, ending testing, ending tracing, ending isolation. Tools that have been very much a part of the arsenal right from the outset of this pandemic. Are those tools still useful, despite what vaccines are delivering? Well, joining us for some thoughts on all of that, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Dr. Lisa Barrett, an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology, as well as the Department of Medicine and Faculty of Medicine, Dalhousie University, Dr. Barrett, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me on. So, I mean, it seemed like a vague question, but I mean, what's your sense of where we're at, both in terms of uh, the good, the, the benefit of vaccines, but the bad and the, the challenge posed by this Delta variant? Yeah, I think it's important for us to think for a moment or two, even though we're all exceptionally tired, not just of the word COVID, but of of, of all of the restrictions and, and, and challenges, it's important to remember we are still in a pandemic. And right now, we're in a world where, as you point out, vaccines are excellent at reducing death and hospitalization. But just like any vaccine, they're not perfect. And we're still learning a lot. Delta variant is on the move. It is the dominant virus in Canada right now. And it is more transmittable. It is more disease-causing, we think. So far, that's what the evidence is showing. And you do need both doses of vaccine to get the maximum benefit. And that's all to say vaccines are our biggest tool in the prevention and limitation of virus toolbox. But I think it's a little early for us to just chalk this up to another respiratory virus and go about as business as usual, no contact tracing, no testing. There are lots of folks who get this virus and we we can't predict who gets sickest very well yet. We don't have great therapies that cure it. And there are a significant number of humans who end up with long-term, ther- uh, long-term side effects. Mm-hmm. And so by accepting cases and not limiting virus, not people, but limiting the virus and using all our tools, we're going to see some people getting sick that probably don't have to. And I don't know if that's okay. Well, yeah, I think that's the question right now. I, I mean, 
you know, the position that, that the Alberta government has taken, and I, I think it's valid at, at a certain point, that, that the more relevant metric right now is severe outcomes, hospitalizations, or deaths, which, you know, it may be true, and maybe you agree, I, I don't know. But it's not to say then that cases, the case count, isn't relevant anymore. So what, what about that side of it? Yeah, cases happen to be people. Um, and people with this virus, as I've mentioned, seem to have, in certain folks, a longer-term side effect, even if you didn't get severe disease. Now, we don't know if that's going to be the same for people who get sick after vaccination. You know, they don't get quite, they don't get as sick at all. Um, but we also have to be clear that it does look like with emerging information and data that the levels of virus in folks who are vaccinated uh, in the context of Delta may be just as high. And we don't know if that means just as transmittable yet, but there's a reasonable chance that it is transmittable. And who are we going to disadvantage if we take away all of our tools of virus limitation too early? We're going to disadvantage people who are vulnerable, those who are unvaccinated either by choice or for a reason, those who are not fully vaccinated yet because of time or place, and also the vaccinated vulnerable. There are still some people who are vaccinated who remain vulnerable for various reasons. And if there's easy, simple ways of limiting virus without doing lockdown, why would we take them away yet until we have a slightly better sense over the next number of months how to do this a little bit better? Which is an important point, because you're right. I mean, if we're going to take more extreme measures like forcing businesses to close, forcing people to work from home, forcing schools to close, that all has an impact as well. But it's it's hard to see where there's any kind of a negative impact from having testing widely avail- available, for example. So when we look at our, our ways of responding and the impact that they have, what, what does that tell us about you know, how we assess the value of, of testing, tracing and isolation still? Yeah, absolutely. I I love the way you put that. You know, it's very important to remember that limiting virus is not about limiting people at this stage. We've learned so much and we have really wonderful tools in vaccines, home types of testing that are starting to become available, um, continued contact tracing, incredibly easy, really, really effective ways of limiting virus without limiting people. And, you know, masks, kind of cheap. The more we keep those cases low in our communities, even if we're not keeping it at zero, while we're still learning more, the more we protect, again, keeping schools open, making sure that people don't unnecessarily have long-term side effects and or get sick. Um, You know, it's easy to say there's only a few deaths. Hold the bus there. If, if we really could have just worn a mask and done some at-home testing or, or kept testing widely available for people and limited those deaths, I can pretty much reassure you that if it was your mother who wasn't around anymore, you'd say this may well be a really good idea to wear masks more frequently for a while longer and also keep testing going. So I think uh, we need to put human faces into this message before we start, you know, going back to business as usual and calling this the usual common cold is not appropriate. It clinically is not the same virus and we just don't have enough information. Maybe in eight months, um, I would almost certainly give you a different answer. But right now we don't have enough information to protect people from these outcomes that simple, easy measures can prevent.
Yeah, and, and clinically, it's an interesting point. And, and you know, I mean, I, I've got kids, and over the years, you know, we've dealt with colds and flus, and, and right. as all parents have. Right? And so we have a sense of, you know, when to keep your kids home, when it's okay to send them back to school. But, you know, we had a, a bout of COVID in our household back in November. Unfortunately, it was all, uh-huh. all fairly mild. But, you know, in the case okay. of my, my teenage son, he had a few days of feeling pretty crappy. And then after two or three days, you know, he, he bounced back fairly quickly. He was feeling a lot better. But knowing that it was COVID because we got him tested, we wouldn't send him back to school after, you know, three or four days because in, in all likelihood, he was still infectious probably for, you know, a few days after that. We, we know the period when it comes to contagiousness with this disease, if people aren't able to get their kids tested or themselves tested and they're having to kind of make a guess as to whether it's a cold, whether it's a flu, whether it's COVID, you know, is it possible that, you know, people are going to be leaving the house or going back to work, or going back to school before they should? And I think that is an inevitability eventually. I, I don't want to sound like I'm saying we should never, ever, ever go back to um, closer to usual business. It's just too early right now. Um, again, as you point out, um, people do have mild symptoms a lot of the time. And if they don't know what it is and they don't even recognize they have a symptom sometimes, it's really difficult to uh, keep yourself at home or not go visit the seniors or, you know, some other folks who may still, even after vaccination, be a little more vulnerable. And as we get more vaccinated folks, if this data is true, which we haven't seen yet, if if the viral loads are just as high in folks who are vaccinated versus not, if that translates into continued transmission, again, while we won't overwhelm our healthcare systems, maybe... We're, we're not there with vaccine rates yet. We really do need people to get that first and second dose very, very soon before we go into a full-on respiratory season in the fall. Even as people get more vaccinated, they're going to have fewer symptoms. And if we don't make a plan for at least letting people, to your point, know what their status is and make their own decisions, I'm not saying everyone has to isolate either, but it helps mm-hmm. people inform their own decisions helps them manage their risk and that of people around them. And, you know, that that is one of the benefits of, of some enhanced at-home voluntary types of testing as well. Um, Health Canada is looking at approving some home COVID tests that are very easy to do. And, you know, I really do think the federal government should be thinking about making sure those are available to people, not to scare people, not to keep them isolated, not to lock people down, but to allow a really informed set of circumstances going into a school year in this fall while we're still learning about the effects of COVID uh, for people. And the good news is, as you say, I mean, you know, we are trending in the right direction. And, you know, you, you made the point already here today, you made the point uh, this week in, in writing about this uh, on, on Twitter that, you know, we can do this for the next few months. We can get a better understanding of what we're dealing with. We can get vaccination rates, hopefully, you know, a lot higher than they are right now. So we're probably not far off then from being able to start to shift. Absolutely. And, and everyone needs a horizon right now. We're all very fatigued. Um, Another season will give us a lot of information. We're already, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, gaining a great deal of information from the U S uh, and looking at Delta, how it reacts in vaccinated and unvaccinated people. Because as cases in total go up, in unvaccinated people mostly, that will proportionally go up in the vaccinated people, of course. And again, um, really, really a little too early for us to shift. But yeah, soon, 
Absolutely. We'll know more clinically. We'll know more about whether or not immunity lasts and whether we need more or different vaccines. And uh, someone made a very thoughtful reply to me and said, you know, some people do find masks really, really difficult to wear from an anxiety, from a um, the perspective of being feeling like they're always in a diseased world and that's really anxiety provoking and I get that Um, but certainly most people wearing masks in public places would still be a huge factor to helping us bring down infection letting other people have a little bit of a break and offering some reassurance to people I think um, we need to avoid that stigma that people are diseased if they're wearing masks you know what if more people are wearing them that gets rid of this idea that only the infected are wearing them which is part of the messaging that's starting to come forward now if you're feeling unwell and have to leave the house so the first message is if you're feeling unwell stay home tick uh second message if you have to go out or be in a public place um instead of going getting tested and figuring out what's going on um wear a mask if you have to be out and and then that starts to become that people think that the people wearing masks are the unvaccinated or the sick (laughs) Right. And then that's not going to go well in a society, uh, I don't think. So just telling people, everyone, hey, consider wearing a mask makes things much more equitable, much more equal, and really does avoid some of that stigmatization. We'll leave it there. Some great insight, Dr. Baird. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. I really did appreciate it. Good chat. All right. All the best. Thanks. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Dr. Lisa Barrett, infectious disease uh, expert, uh, assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at uh, Dalhousie University. So, you know, we're, we're moving in the right direction, but we've still got a bit of a ways to go, both in terms of getting our vaccination rates higher, which I think we still can. Uh, I do worry that we've plateaued a little bit here in Alberta. Uh, but also, you know, getting a better sense of what it is we're up against and knowing all we need to know about this Delta variant. It's been not even two weeks, really, if if you uh, look at the the variant data that the Alberta government or Alberta Health releases. It's only been less than two weeks since Delta really now has established itself as the dominant variant in Alberta. So we don't have a lot of data just even in terms of, well, what's the impact here? So an opportunity to take our time and better understand this and and make some more prudent decisions, that doesn't seem irrational to me, especially when it doesn't have to involve any kind of lockdown or health restriction measures, right? Welcome back. Rob Ridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. So as we head into a likely federal election campaign, perhaps early this fall, I think one of the big issues is, you know, the... the, um, the path we're on in terms of fiscal policy, there was a warning from the parliamentary budget officer that, uh, you know, there's at least the potential that it could literally be decades before we're able to balance the budget federally. Now, obviously, there was a need for some significant pandemic response last year, kind of that, that emergency spending like uh, CERB or the wage subsidy, etc., But at the same time, the government's gambling that, you know, we can sustain significant amounts of borrowing right now. And a lot of this is not just about uh, an emergency response. It's about kind of fundamentally changing the way uh, government operates and unveiling some large new spending programs. So it's, it's an interesting moment, I think, for this country in deciding what kind of fiscal path we want to go down. Because as much as the GDP or the debt to GDP ratio right now seems manageable, that could change. And obviously, all of this borrowing is not without cost and not without risk.
There's an interesting uh, new report out today from the C.D. Howe Institute called Rolling the Dice on Canada's Fiscal Future that has some warnings uh, with regard to the path that we're currently on and where we could as a country run into some trouble. Joining us to talk more about uh, some of these issues and about the report itself is uh, one of the authors of the report. Alexander Loran is a director of research uh, and uh, has some uh, expertise in fiscal and tax policies with the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhowe.org. Alexander, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hello, thank you, and uh, good afternoon. So let's talk about um, you know what prompted this report and and where we're at as a country and and why you see some potential warning signs on the horizon here. Yeah, well, at its core, um, our analysis in the report is pretty simple. Uh, you know, as you know, the latest federal budget in there, we finally uh, got a fiscal anchor. Like we we have been asking for a fiscal anchor for right. for a few years, and we got it. And the fiscal anchor is to decrease the debt ratio, the debt-to-GDP ratio over the midterm. So now the government announced an anchor, and then there's some um, projections, some pretty reassuring projections in the budget, and it shows a, a path for the future where the debt, the debt ratio diminishes gradually, you know, year over year gradually, over the next 35 years, and it, it comes back to the pre-pandemic level of 30%. So it's pretty reassuring, right? We're in, yes, it takes 35 years, but we're going back to the 30% that we were before the pandemic. So we, you know, like we, we looked at this and, and we thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, it's, 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 it's better than we thought initially that it, that it, it would be. So we, we re- recalculated these scenarios and we, we just changed the assumptions slightly. You know, this is a sensitivity. We're, we're testing the assumptions. And then what we found is, um, is that even, it, 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 Changing uh, assumptions about economic growth and interest rates, which is pretty basic, uh, we, and, and we don't have to change them that much to see a, a much different trajectory for the future. So, uh, trajectory of the debt burden. So instead of instead of the debt uh, to GDP ratio uh, dropping um, uh, under what we thought were more realistic assumptions, more prudent assumptions, uh, the, the debt ratio actually increases uh, in the next 35 years, and it, it, uh, it reaches 60%. You know, it, it, this is 35 years. It could be 75%, could be 55%. doesn't matter that much. The, the, the message here is that it, it's increasing instead of decreasing. And, and so we conclude from that that, the, you know, that the, the, there's a lot of risk that's baked in these reassuring budget projections. And so the future governments, you know, you, you, you mentioned an election, um, a new government or the same government, whatever, a future government, we will likely have to deal with that. And because there, there's, no, there's not much room that is left in there for any type of an expected shock. Uh, and, and that's a problem. And it's even more alarming because we also did the calculations for in, including in there, in the analysis, provincial death. And, and, and you, you, we, pretty, a lot of people know that provinces' perspectives are, are not rosy. And so when you include the provinces, then things really turn sour. So that, that's, the, you know, that's the crux of, of, of our analysis. So talk about these these numbers because obviously percentage um, you know of of uh, GDP that debt to GDP ratio is is relevant because it speaks to our capacity to manage all of that debt. But 
what's an ideal number? I mean, is we're currently at about 50 percent, I guess. Is, I mean, is anything less than 100 acceptable? Is 60 percent worrisome? Is 75 percent worrisome? You know, what, what's a red flag in terms of that number? That's a great question. Uh, we economists don't really have a precise answer for uh, you know the ideal uh, debt, debt level for the debt ratio. Uh, there's um, you're talking fifty percent. When you said fifty percent, you're uh, you're actually referring to the federal government. If you include the provinces in there, we're more uh, at eighty eighty five percent. So it's much higher. Uh, and, and, and in our analysis, because of the province's perspective, because they have to fund health care and the proposition is aging, uh, the, this, is, this is not news to, uh, to, to many people following public finance. The provinces are really stressed, their finances are stressed, and, and we are projecting uh, deficits in the future for provinces because they have to deal with the population aging and, and, and health care spending. So because of the perspectives of provinces, the, the actual national combined federal-provincial debt ratio could reach 140 percent in 35 years, mind, mind you, but in, in like 30, 20 years, it could, it could exceed 100 percent. And, 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 but these are like, because debt rating agencies would, would look at the, mostly the combined uh, federal-provincial debt, because, you know, like if, if <laughs> it doesn't, both, both, both levels of government in Canada have, have a lot of power, and they can they, they both can borrow as much as they want. So it it doesn't really make sense to only look at one order of government because if if a provinces goes, you know, if provinces will not go bankrupt, but if it before it does, the federal government will will um, will, will help the province. So it's it's you know. It, Debt rating agency will look at both combined, and both combined uh, can get pretty high in the next 20, 25 years. Like over 100% would be considered high, and um, even over 60% uh, is high in, in the way that it starts to affect your interest rates. You know, like it, for by how much, you know, there's many uh, estimates out there. But at one point, uh, a high debt ratio starts to affect your interest rates, and that's where you can get in trouble. So there's two components here that, you know, one, the government has more control over than the other. Certainly the amount of money we spend, the amount of money we borrow, government's very much in control of those decisions. In terms of what happens with regard to economic growth in the coming years, that's obviously outside the government's hands. Um, are both of these equally relevant factors or is, is one more important than the other? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Again, yeah, we we close our our analysis with with that simple uh, recommendation. You know, it, it, there's a lot of fiscal policies out there that are being discussed, right? Like tax policy, spending policies. Some, you know, are geared towards like encouraging investments, and that's good. That's that's what we need because if we encourage investments in this country, like we're falling behind in Canada. This is this is not in that report. This is in other reports. It's been documented, um, it, you know, uh, year over year. We're, we're falling behind in terms of um, of investments, private investments, business investments uh, in this country, and that's not good because what we need is higher productivity and uh, and and how historically in the last twenty twenty five years we got. Uh, increase in productivity in this country, it's it, it's it's with capital investment. So so we need more of them. And 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 what we need to do is to make sure that the fiscal policy that we're that we'll, we're going to adopt does not discourage investments and in fact encourage investments. So that's that's one thing that's very important to do. And and just doing that 
will help tremendously. So if we're raising taxes, let's make sure we, you know we don't only discourage investment, but we also encourage them. Like we, we, we need to be level-handed here. And um, but and on the spending side, uh, yeah, daycare obviously, obviously daycare can can have an impact on on um, you know on the economy, on productivity, on on hours worked, and and that's great. Um, Let's see. Let's see if it's what happens with, with the federal program and, and, and how costly it's going to be and if it's going to be worth it at the end. But, um, you know, the, at least it, 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 it's, it, it's, a, it's an expensive program, but at least it's one that's geared towards increasing the potential economic growth. So that's, I, 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 I'd say that's a positive. And, you know, if you look at the latest federal budget, a lot of the spending, I think it's, it's David Dodge at, at Bennett Jones now that, that – that actually mentioned that 75% of what was in the budget was actually uh, pure consumption and not like those type of spending that are um, that are productivity enhancing. So um, yeah, I mean, they, let's improve economic growth, and and if we get a higher growth rate over the next uh, over the long term, like it's not a one year thing, over 20 25 years, it will make a huge difference. Like it's just right. getting the economy going can make a huge difference. Some important points. Again, this report is called Rolling the Dice on Canada's Fiscal Future. Much more at cdhow.org. Alexander Loren, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All the best. Uh, Alexander Loren is uh, co-author of this report, Rolling the Dice on Canada's Fiscal Future, also a director of research at the C.D. Howe Institute. Welcome back. Lots more still to get to here this afternoon, but uh, let's talk about pay equity. Who would be against pay equity? Men and women uh, should be paid the same for doing the same work. You know, people shouldn't be paid more simply because they're a certain gender. So obviously, this is a debate that we've been having, what, for, for 50 years. Uh, so the federal liberals recently uh, introduced something called the Pay Equity Act. New legislation meant to do, I guess, what, what, it, uh, what it sounds like, ensure that in federally regulated businesses... Uh, that there's not gender discrimination when it comes to pay, that uh, men and women are paid the same for work of the same value. Now, that does become subjective at some point, right? You've got objective jobs where person A and person B are doing the exact same thing. But when you start to, to classify the value of certain jobs, it becomes a lot less objective, so how's all this going to work in practice? And what's the, the net impact going to be? Because our next guest says, even though this is uh, ostensibly designed to protect women working in these federally regulated businesses, this might end up backfiring. That this might actually harm those women it's ostensibly designed to protect in the first place. Uh, joining us on the line uh, here this afternoon, very pleased to welcome to the program, uh, Howard Levitt who is uh, one of Canada's leading employment and labor relations lawyers, senior partner with LSCS Law. Howard, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Yeah, and again, I mean, you know, oftentimes uh, the, the titles assigned to various pieces of legislation are very deliberate. In this case, to call it the Pay Equity Act, I mean, who would be opposed to pay equity? But talk about wh what this law means in practice. What does this apply to? What's it trying to do, ostensibly? It applies to <clears throat> excuse me, federally regulated employers, such as radio stations, trucking company, banks, telecommunications, airlines, and 
it's about 5% of employees, and which is a problem by itself because those companies have to compete sometimes with companies that aren't federally regulated, especially if they have divisions that are ostensibly competing with provincially regulated companies. And it means you have to go through those companies and look at which types of employees have more women and which types of employees, which categories of employees, IT technicians, clerks, bank tellers, office staff and trucking companies, truck drivers have more men. And then you have to do an evaluation of the relative value of those two jobs. It's jobs of equal value. And at the end of the day, some federal bureaucrat with an ideological mission most of the time will decide what has the same value. And then they're going to take, let's say, a $45,000 a year office staff worker in a trucking company. So you may have the same value in our view as the truck drivers. And they're making $95,000 a year. So you have to now pay all the office staff $95,000 a year from $45,000 a year, which is the, which is the salary commensurate with their market rate in that community. And a lot of companies will be driven out of business. But more significantly, what will happen is a smart trucking operator will say, well, I can't afford to pay this office staff $95,000 when I can hire people like that for $45,000. So I'm just not going to do that anymore. I'm going to contract it all out and fire all the people doing the jobs now who, by definition, are mostly women. Yeah. And everywhere they can haul it out and contract it out, and the companies are contracting to, are provincially regulated. So they can hire people at forty dollars or $45,000 a year to do that work that's now contracted out outside the federally regulated enterprises. So I think this is going to be calamitous to women because it's going to result in massive terminations. Well, yeah, and that's a big worry. I wonder, too, at the same time, I mean, if, if this could uh, be bad news for some, some male uh, workers, that if you know, an employer is in a situation where they have to to balance out these these jobs instead of raising somebody's wage. Would it be easy just to to cut somebody's wage instead and and end up at an equal? Well, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, and it's true. Now, the problem is, if a truck driver makes ninety five thousand dollars a year, they'll maybe get a job with a provincially regulated right, trucking exactly. company that doesn't cross borders, and the extent there's enough jobs to absorb them and get their $95,000 salary back. The other thing is they cut a $95,000 salary to $45,000 and make everybody $60,000. That's going to be a constructive dismissal allowing all of these employees to sue you who have their salaries reduced. So that's a practical problem that many are going to be faced with. Yeah. But what might also happen to the male employees is with the female employees, the company will become uncompetitive with American trucking companies to do the same cross-border trucking they are not encumbered with these federal expensive regulations like pay equity and the business will go to them. They'll do it. And these yeah. companies in Canada will go to business. Yeah. And that's a big concern because you're right. It's going to mean a lot of lost jobs. So it's hard to see how this helps uh, somebody who all of a sudden finds themselves out of a job. Now, look, as you say, I mean, obviously you know, a, a lot of this is go ahead. No, it's a bit ideological. Right. Let's exactly. Talk about that. I think we're in a capitalist society, and the market should prevail. So if a job is worth $45,000 in the marketplace, that's what it should be paid. The government shouldn't be saying you have to overpay a job that only commands a $45,000 salary and suddenly double it because of an ideological view of equal value, because all that does is put companies out of business. 
Well, I think you're right, because I think, you know, the government wants to show that it cares about these issues. Or they, they, they want to address, you know, this, this issue of uh, gender wage gaps. But it's a very small percentage of the workforce that is federally regulated. So it's not going to have a, a big positive impact, but there's certainly the, the potential that it's, it is going to have some negative impact. But it, it does kind of feel like um, a, a bit of uh, political theater here, virtue signaling. For sure. Now, where it won't impact is in the public sector, because they will simply raise all these office workers' salary by from 45 to 90, to give my example, and we taxpayers are just to pay higher taxes. So it will affect the rest of us, but there won't be layoffs in the public sector because there never is. Right. Yeah, that's for sure. Now, this, this, is, uh, this is set to kick in later this, this summer, isn't it? It's starting immediately. They've got three years right. to fully implement it, but it's starting immediately. Yeah. Uh, so reason for concern here. I guess we'll see how it all uh, plays out in, in practice, but uh, we may have to, to look back after a few years and, and wonder how we go about fixing this, this potential mess. Well, the only thing that fixes is probably a change of government. But beyond that, this is happening. Yeah. Absolutely. Howard Levitt, appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks for making some time Thank for us Thank you so much for having me. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's Howard Levitt, senior partner with LSCS Law, one of the country's leading employment and labor relations lawyers, laying out some pretty obvious concerns about this this uh, legislation here, the impact it's going to have. So if you're going to force these federally regulated companies to jack up salaries for certain workers, you're creating a situation where maybe it's uh, just as likely that those workers will find themselves out of a job. And how is that helping anybody? So here's the thing, right? When we talk about the gender wage gap, what men earn versus what women earn. And I think the idea that, you know, men are being paid more for doing the same job, I, I think that side of it has is, is long been put to rest. Because after all, if a company could hire a bunch of people to do a certain job, why wouldn't that company just hire all women? If you can get away with paying women less than men for doing the same job, you'd save a whole bunch in labor costs. That's not the reality anymore. But there is still that reality that, uh, you know, when you look at certain jobs and what those jobs pay, you do find in general maybe that, that men find those higher paying jobs, uh, women tend to be in, in jobs that pay less. That's not a general rule across the board, but it helps to explain why there's a gender wage gap. So is, does this kind of an approach fix any of that? I, I don't think it does. I think ultimately maybe what we should be doing is looking at what's holding women back from accessing those higher paying jobs and helping to steer them in that direction, helping with job training, whatever it might take. If there are barriers to women accessing jobs that pay a certain amount of money, then how do we eliminate those barriers? And it's not because you've got a bunch of bosses all across the country that are sexist and just want to hire a bunch of guys so they can sit around and, you know, engage in all the locker room talk and smoking cigars and all of that. I mean, that, that's just not the reality, I don't think. So it'll be interesting to see the impact of this approach and is, is uh, you know, if these concerns that Howard lays out do turn out to be the case, uh, then we've got a much bigger problem on our hands, don't we? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.